So as you can probably figure it out, Pastor Richard is not here today. He and Tony are out of town. And kind of like, I like what Pastor Brian said a few weeks back, that when Pastor Richard's gone, he gets the best speakers up here for you. Problem is that when uh, they're not available, you end up with me. So, but it doesn't matter. The Lord's going to be working through us today. Okay. So today, we're kind of going to wrap up a, as we put it, an informal series that we've kind of been doing as a church on Sunday mornings with, you know, different speakers. You know, Pastor Richard, and we had Pastor Rob a few weeks back, and he shared his experiences from the South Sudan. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Hassan from Acapulco, and now me. And we're all kind of following a same similar theme. You know, part of people were talking, oh, it sounds like we're doing a lot of missions outreach, and very true. But it goes deeper than that. Because really, if you listen carefully, the theme that constantly comes through this is that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has called us all to a ministry, some kind of ministry. And he is going to be faithful to lead each of us to where he wants us, provided, and here's the key, provided that we are faithful to answer that call. Okay, Really, that's what it boils down to. Every believer in here has a responsibility to follow Christ, obviously, but also to do his will. Because, well, we've given our lives to the Lord. And I want you to think about that statement, given our lives. You see, when you give something to somebody, okay, you are transferring all rights and all ownerships of that thing to the person you're giving it to. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians kind of think of this way, giving our lives to the Lord is kind of a poetic way of saying we're saved. But it's more than that. Because if you're truly giving your life to the Lord, you are transferring all rights and ownership of your own life to the Lord. No strings attached. No exceptions. Unfortunately, most of us, I would probably say most of us, have done the same thing, okay? To kind of relate to this, how this kind of gift-giving isn't really that great, I think all of us can relate to that wonderful day when you got your first car. And your folks, they handed you the keys. You got those keys in your hand. You're thinking in your head, oh, great, we can start that carpool to school with my friends. And, oh, yeah, it's good weather this weekend. And go down to Huntington Beach and... I can drive there now and not have to bum a ride off of everybody. And then reality sets in, because now your folks are not through talking to you. Here are some restrictions, because we're still paying the insurance, and we're still paying the gas for this. So no, you can only drive it between home and school or home and work. And no, you can't have anyone ride with you, except for your little brother. And that's when we need you, and we can't do it ourselves. Forget about going anyplace on the weekends because you've got your homework to do and you've got too much to do. And you're kind of sitting there thinking, oh, how is this an advantage? I just got a gift. Didn't work very hard. Well, now put yourself in God's place. Someone has just given you a gift and now they're saying, well, there's some restrictions there, Lord. You know, you, I, my life is yours, but... I have my life plans. I have these things I want to do in this career I want to pursue. And Lord, I want you to act as my co-pilot. And I want you to just be with me and we're going to have a great time, just you and me, Lord. In fact, there's a little bumper sticker that even says that God is my co-pilot. Is that really what Lord wants you to do? No. He wants that gift without restrictions. He wants you to realize that once you have surrendered your life to him, you are now his bondservant. And as a bondservant, that's another way of saying slave, okay? People don't like hearing that. He's going to be the one that's going to be guiding you. He's going to run your life according to his plans, not change his mind just because you're uncomfortable with something he may have come up with. He's not going to rubber stamp your plans. Now, as you can imagine, in today's me-centric culture of entitlement, this does not go down very well at all. 
What do you mean I have to give up my rights or my plans to do something that doesn't fit in with what I want to do with my life? But if you're a Christian, what is your goal? Think about that. Really, to be honest, is to serve the Lord. But ultimately, when we reach the other side and we stand before the Lord, every one of us should want to hear the following words. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. Well, the thing is, if you want to be a good and faithful servant, you don't question your master's commands, nor do you expect your master to change his plans just to make your life easier. What it means is that being called to serve, that's not a suggestion. It's a command. And the full blessing of the Lord comes with a faithful discharge of that command and doing it his way. Now, some people may at this point be asking, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Are you telling me that if I don't answer that calling and serve that I won't make it to heaven? Oh, no. We are not saved by works. We are saved through grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ who paid for our sins. Okay? However, the works are part of it, not for salvation, but the demonstration of salvation. Okay? Essentially... Think of it as like having a job. Now, you get this job, and you do the minimum amount of work to keep that job. Okay? You clock in, clock out on time. You don't do anything extra. You move along. You're not doing anything wrong, but you're not doing anything above and beyond the minimum expected to you. Well, guess what? Beyond the cost of living adjustment raises you may get every now and then, you're not going to get any bonuses. You're not going to get any promotions. You might not even get any pay raises. You're not going to lose your job. You're not going to be blessed, though. And the Christian life works the exact same way. You give your life to God, there's, he wants you to do something with it, not just sit and say, I'm a pew warmer for the next service. Or, well, that doesn't fit with my life. I have my plans. He doesn't want you to do that. And the thing is, he wants to bless every single one of us. And the only way he can bless us is that we step out as servants and do what we are supposed to do. Now, believe it or not, even before you are saved, before I was saved, God had laid a path out in front of me, in front of you. Thing is, in my case, I didn't see it. Oh, I knew about it. I had heard about it from church and so forth, but I never made that commitment to Christ, so I wasn't aware of it. I was still kind of doing things my way, but the path was still there. Now, for some people, when that path is laid and they become, you know, they become Christians, they see the path all the way to the end, and they know exactly what the Lord wants them to do. And it's crazy sometimes what these guys do, but they get blessed by it, and it's great to hear their testimonies when it happens. Then there's others like me where the path is more like going through a forest. You see it twist and turn, and okay, I see the end of the bend, but I don't know what's over there, and it's getting kind of dark in here. The Lord's saying, just keep walking, okay? Keep walking. And you see certain little nuggets. You're thinking, well, boy, is this it? And the Lord's saying, no, the path is going on. You can stay here for a little while, but keep going. Follow that path. The Lord's going to lead you to that goal. And yeah, you're going to have doubts about what the Lord's calling you for. You're going to be experiencing resistance from the enemy, especially if you're actually doing a great job. Enemy doesn't like that, so you're going to experience persecution. And you're going to experience disappointment when things don't seem to turn out the way you think they should. But that's there to help you strengthen your spiritual walk and to better prepare you for the ultimate goal that the Lord may have in mind for you. Again, he's asking for faithfulness no matter what the circumstances you're being placed in. To be honest, aside, aside from the path that you're supposed to follow, the Lord also has another way of letting you know his will. Again, even before you become a believer, he plants something in your heart, his calling. And you may ignore it for a while because the seed hasn't sprouted yet. But once it begins to sprout, once it begins to glow, grow, you begin to realize, hey, there are things that I want to do. I want to make a difference. This kind of explains in many ways why so many of the unsaved are such great philanthropists. Even though they're unsaved, they're still doing good. Well, how can that be? 
Because they are actually following a seed that God planted in them. Now, are they going to go to heaven? No. All the good works in the world isn't going to help you in that way. But they actually are, do a better job following God's calling than a lot of Christians are. Okay? Because God planted it there. He planted that desire to do good, even though they're trying to do it without him. As it grows more, you start thinking about things that maybe you don't think about before. Not bad things. Like, for example... You never had children, and you really didn't want any children, but now you're thinking about, how can I reach out to these kids? Totally out of character for you. Well, perhaps there's a call for children's ministry. You know, go over and check out the open house. Maybe you'll feel that confirmation as soon as you walk through those doors. So, you go over there, you try it out, you serve, and you realize you love working with those kids. And you love listening to them with their little bits of theology. Like, you know, they talk about the story of Ikea, and he was a wee little man who wanted to climb up a tree. That's it, we're talking kids now. Or around Christmas time, when they talk about the three wise men, they say, well, yeah, this gift is gold, this gift is myrrh, and the third one said, Frank sent this. Or singing hymns, or actually singing Christmas carols, one that sticks in my mind, my own son did. They're singing Away in the Manger, and he twisted one of the words to Stay by my Play-Doh till morning is night. (laughs) The innocence of kids when it comes to teaching the word is wonderful because they're wide open for those seeds of the gospel that you plant. More people who are adults who are saved and and have been saved before they became teenagers stuck it out with the Lord. Not all, okay? There's always exceptions. But it's an important ministry. And now you're a part of it, and you're getting blessed. You're thinking, oh, this is great, and you're doing well. And then the Lord's saying, I got another job for you. And you see an announcement about ministering at an orphanage in Mexico. And so you do it. You know the Lord's got, it, got your back, so you do it, and you're blessed there. And then later on, the Lord says, I got another, another one for you. You're really doing good. I want to send you to organize a children's ministry at a church plant over in New Hampshire. New Hampshire? Why there? Wait and you'll see. A lot of times you don't get those answers right away, but they still come. Occasionally, you've got people who have selfish motives in ministry. Oh, yeah, I I feel led to minister to people in Hawaii. Because I'm a surfer, and I love surfing, and I can relate to their spiritual issues. You know, man, they've got some major hang-ups over there. They they are into drugs and alcohol, and their families are all messed up and everything. And, yeah, I can do that. I I I can... work out with them and everything and Lord man that sounds like my plan and then one day you read an article in a magazine about people having the same problems you've just been talking about well they're not in Hawaii they're in Fairbanks, Alaska (laughs) and suddenly your heart is going out to the people in that article and you're thinking there must be something I can do Uh, wait a minute This is absurd. I hate snow. I mean, I'm a beach bum type. Why would I go to Fairbanks, Alaska? Because the Lord now is revealing, ah, going to, it's not where you're going, it's the call. It's who you're going to be ministering to. You have a heart for those people. Maybe you've been through it yourself and you know how to reach them. That's great. But it doesn't matter if you're going to Hawaii or if you're going to Fairbanks. You need to go. And you're a little resistant as you think about it, but then you start looking up more information about Fairbanks. And soon you start making plans to go up there, seeing if your car can actually handle the Alaska Highway. And then start looking up prices for housing in Fairbanks. And then going over to Brat Bass Pro Shop to make make sure you have enough cold weather gear. That's dedication. And the Lord has given you that call, and you're now following. It may have taken a little while, but you've done it. Some people before that point saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not ready. If the Lord is sending you somewhere, you will be ready when the time comes. He's not going to waste your gifts, and he's going to bless you for that faithful service.
We've been talking a lot about missions. But guys, let's keep in mind that the mission field doesn't start at the border. It doesn't start on the ocean. It starts the minute you walk out these doors. Okay? Some of the biggest fields that need the workers the most are within the borders of our own country. Interesting article came out a couple months ago from the Gospel Coalition. They talk about which states are the most unchurched. And when they talk about unchurched, they're talking about people who have no connection with the church whatsoever. They were not raised in the church. They've never been to church other than maybe to a wedding or a funeral. They have no knowledge of the different days. To them, Christmas is forgiving and getting and a day off. And uh, Easter, what's that? And some people may, may snicker at that, but I had students in my class who had no clue about Easter. And other students were witnessing to them about what it was all about. But to them, Easter was just another Sunday. What's so special about it? What's interesting is the top 10 most unchurched states in the Union. And believe it or not, California is not up there. California actually has a lot of church people here. It's slipping, as we know. But the church still has, wields quite a bit of influence in this state. No, it's in the, probably, I consider, the most unexpected location. Are you ready for this? Six of the ten most unchurched states are in New England. The bastion of faith, the religious citadel of our country at one time, home of the pilgrims, home of the Puritans, New England. Between one and three percent of the population of those states actually attend an evangelical church. And believe it or not, to put that in perspective, that is less than the percentage of evangelical Christian churchgoers in Mormon Utah, where the Mormon church reigns supreme there. More people go to church there than in New England. And here's the other kicker, the other remaining four in the top 10, Nevada, Alaska, Oregon, Washington, all in our own backyard. Yeah, we've got Mexico, they receive the gospel more freely down in Mexico than they do in Portland or Seattle or Carson City or Las Vegas, especially Las Vegas. Okay? They don't think they need it. We live in the United States. That means we're religious anyway, if they even think along those terms. God wants to send you to places that you may feel uncomfortable of going. I don't want to go to Las Vegas. Well... What if you get the call? Well, if the Lord's saying, this is where I want you. I don't want to go to Fairbanks, Alaska. What if you get the call? I don't want to stand in front of a room of screaming kids trying to teach the Bible. What if you get the call? I don't want to move my, movie to, my family to Utah. What if you get the call? If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 9. We've looked at this passage many times in the past few months, and we're going to look at it again. It doesn't hurt to read the Bible more than once, okay? What we see here is a good thumbnail sketch of a servant of the Lord who is very, very zealous for what he does, and he thinks he's doing the right thing. Problem is he's doing it his way, not God's way. And when the Lord has his hand on somebody and really has a mighty work in mind, a lot of times the Lord will intervene in some very dramatic way to catch the guy's attention. And in the case here, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Though at this point, he was referred to as Saul the Pharisee. And this is a very familiar story, but we're going to go through it again. And we see the Lord at work and we see changes in attitude. And we need to follow some of these attitudes that... Paul has. We're starting in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Damascus. As he, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was, he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now at this point, a lot of times before his conversion, people tend to demonize Saul and say he was a horrible person, bloodthirsty tyrant that, that just all he, his joy in life was just hauling people in the jail and maybe having him killed. After all, when he was witnessing the stoning of Stephen, he stood by and he was in perfect agreement. In fact, he held everybody's coats for him, saying, yeah, go to it. But you have to remember that Saul himself was devoted to God. He was, devote, he was a devoted Pharisee. And these actions he took, he honestly thought he was doing the right thing for God. He looked at Christianity as blasphemy, and he wanted to stamp it out to protect the integrity of his religion. And now suddenly the, the Lord steps in and stops him cold on the road. What was Saul's response? Well, in verse 6 he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? There is no pause here. There is no debate, no questions, no, well, let me think about it first, or even more, the famous, oh, let me pray about it first. Okay? What do you want me to do? An acknowledgement that he had been called, and he got the message, and now he's waiting for further instructions. Now, verse 6 continues, the Lord basically tells him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Well, I don't know what Saul was thinking at that point, but most people don't like an answer that's that vague. You've basically just turned my life upside down, and you're telling me to wait? Well, yeah, because God works in his own timing. God knew Saul better than Saul knew himself. And if, if you think about it, Saul's religious beliefs had just been turned upside down, and because of his life was so intertwined, his life was turned upside down. He needed time to kind of reflect and decide what's going on here. You see, when he asked, Lord, who are you? Okay, or who are you, Lord? It wasn't because he didn't recognize so much the voice of God. It's just that he was discovering that who he thought God was wasn't God. It was a totally different Lord that, because it was there in the scripture, he just didn't know it. And now he realized, I was wrong. He needed time, and he got three days without distractions, being blind. And he, as any man of God would, was praying and fasting the whole time. And God rewarded that. We don't know what went through his mind. We don't know what happened. All we do know that at the end of those three days, the Lord began to work again, this time through another believer in verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So at first, Ananias kind of does the same thing Saul does. Here I am, Lord. What do you want me to do? And then the Lord <clears throat> tells him. And Ananias looks and says, Oh, 
He's undergoing a typical human reaction to a call to go into a dangerous spot. He's essentially saying, um, did I hear you right, Lord? Just say that again. Are we talking about the same Saul of Tarsus? You want me to go and heal him? I mean, he's essentially reminding the Lord about this guy as if the Lord really needed a reminder. And I love the Lord's response. Go. Didn't even address the fears because really there was nothing to fear. Essentially, yeah, okay, tell me what you're feeling. I understand, now go. Go and do it. And it'd probably be the same thing if the Lord approached you and said, he wanted you to go someplace dangerous. And your response might be, well, Lord, did you really want me to go to that part of Mexico? I might get killed or kidnapped. Lord says, go. Lord, are we talking about going out to the park and witnessing to some of these drug-crazed and homeless guys? You want me to do that? Lord says, yeah, go. Lord, you want me to share my faith with my crusty old neighbor, the same one who yells at the kids all the time and then yells at me when I park in front of his house? Yeah, go. Lord, you want me to move my family to Utah? Yeah, go. Lord didn't even address the fears. Go, do it. And like Ananias, like the good servant he was, he went. And we know the rest of the story. Paul's blindness was healed. And now we go to the next phase. Paul is now, or Saul is now no longer a Pharisee. He's now Saul the Christian. And he jumps into his new calling, at least so he thinks. He starts preaching. He starts discussing things. And guess what? It fell flat. He antagonized so many people that they wanted to kill him. And he had another problem, probably a bigger one. People looked at him and says, well, wait a minute. You came up here to arrest us. Do you honestly believe that we think you actually changed, changed sides and now one of us? No one trusted him. And that's not a very good witness. Damascus got too hot to hold him, so down he went to Jerusalem, and the same thing happened all over again. Now notice nowhere in here that it said that the Lord led him to do all that. Saul went out. Saul did this. Now there was nothing wrong with what he did, but he didn't do it in the Lord's timing. And that's why eventually the Lord says, fine. The disciples took him and sent him off to his hometown in Tarsus for a while. Why? He needed to be prepared. He was taken out of ministry to be prepared for ministry. Acts doesn't really tell us what went on, but Paul does in different epistles. He was being taught by the Lord. He was learning a lot of things. And I'm sure it was frustrating because, let's face it, he was a Pharisee. He was the top of his class. He knew the scriptures inside out. He was able to draw the connections between the Old Testament prophecies and the symbolisms to the Christ. He spoke Greek and Hebrew. He, know, he knew how to communicate with anybody in that area. And he was a Roman citizen, which meant he got added protection and privileges that would help him as he moved about that part of the Roman Empire. But that didn't matter to the Lord. He didn't want a privileged intellectual. What he wanted was a servant, a faithful servant, who would go anywhere and not worry about the effect on himself. To follow instructions Maybe think, well, I wonder why we're doing this, but still to follow those instructions. So off to Tarsus he goes. And it really isn't until chapter 13 of Acts when we see Saul being unleashed upon the Gentile world, doing the job that God called him. And notice the words in chapter 13. The Holy Spirit set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work I have called them to do. It wasn't Saul calling the shots. It was the Holy Spirit. And Saul did his job well. Whenever he came to a new town, he always asked two questions. One, where are the Jews? Where do they meet? And two, what's the jail like? Why? Because he's probably going to end up in both places at some point during his visit. And as we see through the book of Acts, that's no joke. He ended up in jail. He ended up with a, with a synagogue or at the river where the Jews were meeting. And he did it in such a way, it's like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, I'm going to be persecuted. The Lord said I was going to suffer for his name. Bring it on. I'm the servant. He also listened to instructions. He would say, well, let's go up 
over there. That's a good town. We can preach there. And the Holy Spirit said, no, I want you to go over there. Okay. Off he went. Sometimes the places he didn't even consider going, consider going to Macedonia. He didn't even think about it. Then he had a vision. Go to Macedonia. Okay, Lord. And his ministry had such a fulfilling that at the end of his life, he's writing his protege, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, he writes this summary of how he felt about his ministry. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May we be able to say that when our time comes, that we did what we were supposed to do. We were the good and faithful servant. And we would follow where the Lord is leading, the promptings in our heart, and follow that path that he has been laid for us. Now here, it's going to get kind of personal. Because as many of you know, and as Pastor Richard has announced a few times this last month, my family and I will be moving on in July to a place that the Lord had laid upon our hearts almost 20 years ago. And the weird thing was the Lord has actually been laying that groundwork even longer than that, even before I was saved. And we don't have time to go through all the ins and outs of what it was, but, you know, to all appearances, I mentioned I was kind of a phony for 20 years. I was the model Christian. I went to Pastina Christian and graduated from Maranatha High School. And I brought people to the Lord. I talked theology with them. The Lord used me, even though I had never given my life to him. I just had an intellectual knowledge of Christianity. And then I was going to go to college. I was going to get a degree, a high-powered degree, to get a good-paying job, start a family. Let's go out and live the American dream. But the Lord had already laid that path, and now he was going to be very forcefully putting up roadblocks to keep me from that path. First thing, of course, was college. That high-powered degree I got, well, by the time I graduated, there were no jobs there. In the mid-'80s, there was a recession going on. No work at all. I was doing odd jobs here and there. After a couple of years, getting tired of going from job to job to job, I finally saw an ad in the want ads in the local newspaper. This really dates me. Okay? And it wanted somebody who had a bachelor's degree and who had passed the California Basic Education Skills Test. Now, by a strange coincidence, yeah, right, I had taken the CBEST when I was still in college and passed it. Why? Because my girlfriend at the time was taking it. I passed it. I had the qualifications for that job. A substitute teacher in the, Monre in the uh, Moreno Valley Unified School District in the in Inland Empire. And to be honest, I was a little nervous because they hired me on the spot. And the first thing they did was tell me how to keep a class under, under control that was going, out, going nuts. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, great. I walk into the room, they'll all look at me and say, fresh meat. <laughs> I had never considered teaching as a career, but I didn't want to starve and I didn't want to be homeless, so they paid the bills. My first day, Sunny Mead Middle School, seventh grade English. You want to know something? I loved it. God had given me a gift somewhere. I have no clue where it came from. I could keep these kids under control. I'm not saying that as bragging. That's how I survived 30 years at the classroom. Okay? 20 of which I taught middle school, grades 6 through 8. Man, you're crazy. Yes. <laughs> Trust me, it helps. <laughs> so here I go. I'm in teaching now, and I'm still looking for the real job, the real job, the one that has to do with my degree. It's not happening. I'm applying here, looking there, and so forth. I'm married now. We want to start a family. All I'm doing is getting paid. I'm not getting any benefits whatsoever, so it's like, okay, let's, let's go ahead and get the credential. That way, at least I can get a decent job, get a pay, and then, you know, we have health benefits. And 
Another interesting coincidence takes place. All the preliminary classes that I needed for that credential, I had already taken them in college as breath requirements for graduation. Coincidence? And here's another weird thing. Up to this point, I thought my degree was being pretty useless. It allowed me to have a waiver so I did not have to take any of the national teacher examinations or the praxis to get my credential. I could just walk in qualified just on my degree alone. And those who are in teaching know that they don't do that anymore. This was, after all, back in 1987. Okay? Took me a year, and there's more. I didn't have to go through a year of starving as a student teacher. I had subbed two years. Therefore, I got placed on a paid internship program to do my student teaching. Full pay, full benefits. Don't see the hand of God working now. Open your eyes. This is, none of this was planned. This is how it worked. Time passed. The Lord was leading us more and more into what he wanted, but I still was a little resistant. At some point, and actually it was before I became a teacher, I actually did give my life to the Lord. It was right after graduation. Things had fell apart. I knew I needed him. And so now I was listening to the call. And now I knew for some reason he wanted me in the classroom, and I have no clue why. Oh, well. I'm here. pays the bills. Let's go. Now, a burden started showing up about 2002, okay? And not just for me, but also for my wife, Alicia. Suddenly, we started thinking about, of all places, Utah. Oh, do you have uh, relatives that live up there? No. Do you have relatives who are Mormon? No. Why do you want to go to Utah? I don't know. <laughs> we want to go to Utah. Well, it is a pretty place. Let's face it, it's one of the most beautiful spots in the country. But that wasn't our primary goal. It was, we don't know, the Lord wants us there. Now I'm thinking, okay, well, let's see how much it takes to be a teacher up there. And it wasn't that hard to transfer the credential from state to state, but there just were no openings. There was nothing that, we could, that seemed to fit or I was qualified for. So we just went along. And we got involved in ministry. We started a church in La Cunada. Alicia got into children's ministry and women's ministry. I started Sound and Media. Okay? And we served there. And we felt the call. We'd go up once in a while. And then after a weird set of events, another story for another time, we landed here in Monrovia. Okay? At that time, we were called Calvary Solid Ground. And we met at First Christian Church over there by the park. And Wednesday nights, we met in someone's living room. A, little, a, little, uh, a dear lady opened her home up to us, and there was about, well, about a dozen of us on a good night. And we had a Bible study, and Pastor Richard was there. He would lead worship with his guitar with Tony singing along. And it was a beautiful time. And we knew, again, the Lord wanted us here. Why, we don't know, but it was closer to home, close to where we lived. I taught in Monrovia, so, hey, this is great. As we, and the ni nice thing about a small church is you get to know everybody. Everybody knows everybody else. And at some point, and I forget exactly when it was, Richard, Pastor Richard took me out to lunch, and I started to share with him our burden for Utah. And it was the weirdest confirmation because he said, you know, I've been thinking about Utah, too, because the Lord kind of impressed upon me that someone in our church has a burden up there. I didn't know who it was. I didn't know why I was thinking about it. Now I understand. Confirmation. Well, he was support behind us. We continue to serve at this church. I mean, this is, the time is just going through. We're moving on. And we're going to jump ahead to 2012. And the Lord kind of, and, and this is something I should have known, but the Lord basically impressed it upon me. 2012, guess what? You're eligible for early retirement in five school years in June 2018. Better start thinking about where you're going to go. Okay. So I talked to Alicia. We, we decided we're going to drive up to Utah. And if we have our first slide, this is Utah. Okay, we don't have time for a history lesson, but 
Utah is, uh, much as I'd enjoy it, and we get a lot out of it, but Utah, just basic, is primarily Mormon. Okay, if you look at the statistic, we are looking at probably close to 80% Mormon. Now, when it comes to practicing Mormon, that number is considerably less. But they're part of the territory. They're part of the area. You see the Mormons settled the area up here in Salt Lake, up toward the top. Back in 1846-1847, they were running away from religious persecution. And at this time, this part of the country was in Mexico. It was not in the United States. And so they figured they can do their thing, practice their polygamy, whatever all they did, okay, out here, and no one was going to interfere. As a result, they grew up, and the culture of Utah is very much centered on the LDS church, okay? Not so much now as before, but it's still a great influence. It's referred to as the most Republican of the Republican states. Very conservative, very family-oriented, very patriotic, okay? Hard place to reach because when you go into Utah as a, as a Bible-teaching church, you don't want to take the Mormon church on toe-to-toe. You preach the word, you love the people. And you got to keep in mind that they don't know the word, Okay? And yet you can't view them as someone who needs salvation easily because on social issues, they're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you. They're against abortion, against gay marriage, against all the things that people basically here in California are for. They look at us as a bunch of weirdos. And to be honest, I look at ourselves as a bunch of weirdos sometimes. Okay? But Utah, hard place to reach because a lot of people don't think they need the gospel there. Now, when we go there, we decided we're going to, Lisa and I decided we are going to connect with some Calvary chapels up there. And our view was more southern Utah, not up by Salt Lake. And two in particular, one in St. George, if we have the next one, and the other in Cedar City, which is the next slide, okay? Down in the southwest corner, that's it. That's all that's there in terms of Calvary chapels in that part of the world. St. George, Calvary St. George is the, is the largest non-Mormon church in southern Utah. They max out at about 400. Think about that, the largest, 400, okay? In fact, if we go to the next slide, at that point in time, these were the only Calvary chapels you could find in Utah, most of them up in the Salt Lake area, Okay. And most of them thriving, but quite a few. There was a lot of people that a lot of Calvaries would get planted. They'd last for about a year or two, and they'd die. It was like a graveyard for Bible-teaching churches. Okay? This sounds like great news. You're going to a graveyard. (laughs) Chances of your ministry succeeding seem to be getting much smaller. Didn't really stop us. We talked with Pastor Rick. He was a senior pastor at St. George. And he understood the territory very well. He wanted to plant lots of churches down there, okay? And in fact, he had already established two. If we go to the next slide, right around St. George, the two green dots, one in Kanab, which was about 60 miles away, and then one in a little town called Hurricane. Don't call it Hurricane, it's Hurricane, okay? They're They're very picky about pronunciation up there. And they had just started, and they were doing okay. But he said he wanted to go further, and he knew our heart. He talked about us. So he said, okay, there's this town I want you to think about. I want you to prayerfully consider. And to be honest, we had never heard of it before. It wasn't even close to being on our radar. If we look at the next slide, right there smack in the center of Utah, about halfway between L.A. and Denver along Interstate 70, a little place called Richfield. Now, at this point, we had just got out of the meeting. He had impressed about it. We talked, Lisa and I talked, do we want to drive up there? I mean, it's about two and a half hours out of Richfield. And, oh, let's see, what time is it? Let's try it. I guess it's close enough. Let's go up there. So we drive in. We're going up there. We're going up, going up the hill. It's a mountain country up there. We're driving into Richfield, central Utah, in December. This is what we see. We roll into town, it's 16 degrees Fahrenheit. And note it's sunny. 
That was the high. We saw this too. Next slide. Okay. And this ideal catering, this is actually the happening place in town. It's a little ice cream and sandwich shop. Closes at 7 o'clock. Okay. And the next slide. The Walmart parking lot. That's the other hot spot. They're open until midnight. Now, we're Southern California born and bred. We're looking at this as like, Lord, this is where you want us to go? And the Lord said, yeah, this is the place. And he said it in such a way that we had no doubt in our minds. We felt a sudden love for a place we had not even known existed 24 hours before. And we drove around, we explored. It started getting dark, so we decided to get back just in case it decided to snow again. And as we're driving back, we're going, going back to our hotel room in St. George, and we're talking about it. And now other things start coming into our minds, positive things. For example, there's a slower pace of life in this town. I mean, if we go to the next slide, this is a Richfield traffic jam. More than two cars at the stoplight. And it took me days to find this picture. <laughs> also, where else? In the next slide, where else can you drive 80 miles per hour on the interstate legally? <laughs> you can. And it shocked me too. This was the place. It was exciting. But we're looking at, we still got five years until retirement. How's that going to work? This place needs the gospel now. Do you want us to try to get a job up there, Lord? We don't know. He was kind of silent on that. Well, we took a few more trips up there later. We made some connections. We talked to, you know, we talked to some pastors of Bible-believing churches in that area. Um, and, you know, you, when you talk about, yeah, we want to come up and plant a church, you realize that you may not be the most welcome person to another pastor in that town, especially when the churches are small. It happens all the time down here. Someone wants to say, hey, I want to work with you. We're planning a church. Thanks, but no thanks. It's weird. Up there, the Southern Baptist pastor, we mentioned what we're doing. His response, thank God we need the help. I couldn't believe it. We were encouraged. We made friends up there. We started focusing on what we were supposed to do, making plans. Okay, Lord, what do you want us to do? Well, let's try this. Let's do this. Maybe this place. We, look, we would look around. We'd find places. Um, but the Lord had another lesson he wanted to teach us. About two years after we made that first trip, I ran into Pastor Rick again down at a conference at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And we met, and you know, he, was, he looked glad to see me. I was glad to see him. But in a second, suddenly, he, his face fell, and he looked like he wanted the earth to swallow him up at that point. And I'm thinking, what happened? What's going on? He confesses. Well, next slide. I sent my youth pastor up to Richfield, and he planted a church, Calvary Severe Valley. That happened last year. I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. I know I should have, but, and he was profuse in his apologies. He's saying, but it, it was ripe. We needed someone up there, and they come from the area, and da, da And he went on, and it's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm praising God because I was concerned myself. Five years was a long time to wait. Thank God he stepped in. But deep inside, I'm sitting here wondering, what's going on? I'm confused. Lord, was we, were we right? Did, was Richfield the place you wanted us to go? I mean, I don't want to interfere with your work up there. You've established work. I don't want to interfere. I mean, Severe Valley is a large place land-wise, but only 9,000 people live in that area, 7,000 in Richfield alone. Is that where you want us to go? And later on that day... I had some quiet time, and I also was revealed a few other things about Severe Valley. Next slide. It was God's hand. They're meeting in a hotel in the middle of town. The owner of the hotel is a Hindu. He doesn't charge them rent. They're getting this place. They could get it rent-free if they wanted, but they pay rent. They feel obligated to do so. 
It's like 200 a month. It's a real ridiculously small amount. And they have raised their own rent several times in the past three or four years. Okay? And he gives them free reign. He lets them do what they need to do, remodeling and so forth. The church maxes out on a good Sunday about 45 to 50. It is still small, but that's amazing growth for an area like that. No mega churches in Utah, sorry. It's not gonna, that's not in the cards. So I knew the Lord was behind it. The Lord finally said, no, I still want you to go there. Clear as day. But guess what? You've forgotten one thing. I have placed you here in Monrovia. This is where you are ministering. You will focus on what's going on here. You will do the job I called you to do here. When the time comes, you will hear the call. All right, Lord, your will be done. We stopped talking about it. We stopped making plans. We started doing anything. In fact, I had a bunch of maps and things on my walls in my office. I took them all down. And I focused on what the Lord told me to do. I am focusing on C.C. Monrovia. And both Alicia and I, we pray that we have done our best to do what we could here, to do the Lord's work the way he wanted us to. Occasionally we thought about Utah. But to be honest, we didn't focus on it. Didn't want to. We just worked, finished out my work as a teacher. The work here is overseeing all sorts of things, changes and so forth. We were ready to go, but at the same time, we were willing to say. 2016, right before Christmas, we're expecting our, our fourth child, our youngest, Amelia. <clears throat> and I get this email from an unexpected location. Pastor Ryan Shaddix, Calvary, Sevier Valley. Oh, what's this? I read it. He tells me that Pastor Rick had told him about our heart for central Utah and our desire to plant a church in the Sevier Valley area. And he wanted to know, are you still interested? Because if so, let's connect. probably one of the most emotional moments in ministry I ever had. Because the Lord was now saying, guess what? They're calling. Are you ready? Alicia, just she bawled. Because it was, I can imagine how Paul felt when Barnabas shows up at his tent shop in Tarsus and says, hey, let's start ministry now. Let's go to Antioch. And I imagine the relief, the desire. Lord, the time has come. We're there. And we chatted on the phone. We went up to visit. We got a, a clear idea of where we were supposed to go and what we were supposed to do. Pastor Ryan had this plan. He wanted to plant a church year for 10 years in the Sevier Valley area, trying to find the towns that have high schools because they could support a church. And we were on board with that. But his problem was... He didn't have enough leadership in order to pull it off because most of his congregation were former Mormons and were less than two years in the Lord. Not ready to do a job like that, not yet. And his vision was, I want to start a Bible ministry school to raise these guys up. Really? I'm the director of the Bible ministry school here in Monrovia. Coincidence? Don't think so. The Lord also revealed to us where he wanted us to go. Next slide. It wasn't Richfield, but 12 miles south of Richfield, a little town called Monroe. <laughs> and it's a little town. Next slide, please. Okay. The happening place there is the, this uh, place right here. It's, you see a bull up on the, on the roof. It's a fast food place called Bullies. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Next slide. And there's the, there's the great store, dollar, fam, or Family Dollar. Okay. Beautiful little town, though. This is wintertime when these pictures were took, so it doesn't show as green as it would be. But still, where we wanted, you know, this is where the Lord sent us. And as if we needed another sign, the Lord sent another sign. 
Next one, please. Monrovian Park. Who knew? This was a fun trip. We got, got a lot, the Lord revealed a lot to us, and in some ways, kind of a weird way. For example, while we're up there on this trip, uh, our daughters, you know, Emma's five at that, at that time, and Amelia was two months, both of them got very ill. And so we had to take him to the hospital. In fact, uh, actually took Amelia to the emergency room. And it's weird how the Lord will use an emergency room visit to, to confirm his will in your life. Because Alicia took, takes our little daughter in there, and it's like a beautiful hospital, as good as anything we got here in Southern California, minus the crowds. Walk right in. They immediately take care of it. Look her over. They take care of our daughter. It's like, you know, they're, they're sweet people really caring about what they're doing. And for my wife, the peace of knowing they had quality medical care was amazing. Wow. Other things we discovered. Yeah, we want to start a church. But basically, we took another trip later, and we finally saw what the Lord wanted. And both Pastor Ryan and I, and Pastor Richard as well, we saw, I'm not going up there to plant a church. I'm going up there as an assisting pastor still. Only now, assisting Pastor Ryan. To basically help him raise up his people, to basically continue to preach the gospel, love the people, and do his, the same things I've been doing down here, up there, to people who need it just as desperately as they need it here. And only because I was willing and my family was willing to heed that call. Now, there's a logic here, too. The Lord does work logically sometimes. Once I was there as an assisting pastor, the people get to know me. They see me who I am. Right now I'm just an interloper from California. But they'll see me as Pastor Allen, not as anything else. And as a result, within a few months, we can start a home study down in Monroe. In fact, the Lord was really good. He showed us, one, a place we could plant a church. Next slide. An empty theater. Great place for a church. It's in good condition, too. It may look a little run down, but the owner keeps it up very nicely. They have a few events in there from time to time. But we, part of, we have a home study. And then after the home study, in typical Calvary Chapel way, it becomes a, a church plant in a little town called Monroe. As far as we can see, that's the Lord's plan. And we keep it in prayer that that's indeed what he wants us to do. Timing. Remember what I said about God's timing. We figured, okay, we know we're going. I retire on June 7th. Okay? And we figured, okay, that gives us the summer to get ready, the summer to make the transition here. And then we figured, eh, we'll get up, to, get up there toward the end of October. That's when the weather starts getting a little iffy up there. Then we go up there in December, and we just see the need that they need workers up there. And that got bumped back to August. And then, wondering about where we're going to live. Next slide, please. This place became available July 1st. Interns from the church up there, the Severe Valley Church, were living here. They moved, were moving out on the 31st. The owners are fixing the place up during the month of June. We move in July 1st. Lord saying, you're not waiting that long. I want you up there now. Beautiful house. Beautiful backyard. It's perfect for a home study. It's perfect for fellowship. Okay, it seems small, but actually the whole property is about an acre. This is just a fenced-in area. Next slide, please. This is where the Lord has led us. And he has provided this all the way. So here we are, guys. In 18 days, after 30 years in a job that I really didn't want, 
I get to turn in my keys for the last time to the office. Because now I'm turning into the real job that the Lord wanted me to have. <laughs> 23 days after that, Praise God. <laughs> 23 days after that, we leave the state of California. All of us, including my younger son, Robbie, as I mentioned, is graduating. The Lord is preparing him for this move, too. And it seems crazy. I'm taking a 50% pay cut because I'm retiring early. I'm leaving behind benefits. My health benefits from the districts expire on, June, or on uh, September 30th. Okay? It's a hard place to go. We already mentioned how hard it can be. But why did we do it? Because the Master called us. Called us away. As a pastor, I encourage people to listen to the voice of the Lord and follow the voice of the Lord. I would be a hypocrite if I did not do the same myself, even if it meant leaving my church family of 12 years, leaving my friends, People that I have invested my life with, invested time in prayer, in counseling, sitting with you when, the, the, when times were rough, my wife making all those connections, sitting with people, listening to them cry. This is the Lord's will, though. There are others. People will be raised up. I'm not worried about it. It's hard. It's hard. First service, I got really emotional. This service, I managed to keep a lid on it. How do I feel? Next slide, please. I'm going on an adventure. And I'm waving my iPad over my head. I don't want to do it now, but... We're going on an adventure. And why, what stuck me about this whole scene in the movie was he had no clue what he was getting into. I have a clue. That's about all I have, though. I am trusting the Lord the rest of the way. I want to close today with a hymn. I'm not going to sing it. But I want to share with you a hymn that was written back in 1892. And it served as inspiration for a whole generation of missionaries that were going out into the world. The title is, I'll Go Where You Want Me to Go. And I'm sharing it with you kind of as a wrap-up for our theme, missions work, church planning, they're one and the same. That we can be inspired and follow where God wants us to lead. It may not be on the mountain's height or over the stormy sea. It may not be at the battle's front, my Lord will have need of me. But if by a still small voice he calls to paths I do not know, I'll answer, dear Lord, with my hand in yours, I'll go where you want me to go. Perhaps today there are loving words which Jesus would have me speak. There may be now in the paths of sin some wanderer whom I should seek. O oh, Savior, if you, be, if, you, or if you will be my guide, though dark and rugged the way, my voice shall echo the message sweet. I'll say what you want me to say. There's surely somewhere a lowly place, an earth's harvest field so wide, where I may labor through life's short day for Jesus the crucified. So trusting my all unto your care, I know you always love me. I will do your will with a heart sincere. I will be what you want me to be. And here's the chorus. I go, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, or mountain or plain or sea. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the words, your word, Father, out of the out of your scripture and the words of this beautiful hymn 
And I ask today, Father, that you place your hand and pour your spirit upon us that we will have that boldness to follow you without question, without conditions. And Father, that those who may be timid, those who may be scared, those who actually may be not willing to give up their plans, we ask you, Father, now to just breathe peace upon them that you have better plans, that you have their lives in your hands. And there's a great work for every single one of us in here. And while our heads are bowed and we're praying, I do want to give an invitation. First off, for many who are not saved, I want to address this, that I may seem like I'm crazy. I'm doing this. I'm not crazy. The Lord is my master, and as I said, I can only go where he sends me. And I'm be lying if I wasn't a little nervous, but I have peace because I know he has his hands on me right now and on my family. And if you want to share that peace, he will be more than happy to give it to you. If you need to just give your life to the Lord today, raise your hand and we'll pray. I see you over there. Thank you. On the side. Thank you. And also for any who may have stepped away from the Lord or perhaps just kind of gone into neutral. Yeah, you know the Lord, you know that he's your savior, but you don't want to do what he wants you to do. Raise your hand and we'll pray for you as well. I see you here on my left, on the right in the center, on the left in the center. Bless you all. Father, we stand before you now. Those who need you desperately, those who need your loving gift of salvation through the death of, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And I ask you now to fill their hearts with your love and that they feel the peace of your forgiveness and the peace of your control. And if they know you, if they've known you before and need to come back, Father, then just show them that you have forgiven them and that you will have a great plan for them and you are faithful to complete that work. And so, Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>